Hello, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Dylan Hartley, owner of Advanced Therapy Solutions, who does OT work with those who are on the spectrum. We talked to him about why he does what he does for those who are on the spectrum. We talked to him about his business, and we get to know him a little bit more. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Asperger Studio. Today, I'm joined with Dylan Hartley of Advanced Therapy Solutions. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Reed. So why don't you good to be here. Good to have you here. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, wow. Um, the short story or the long one? Um, short story, I'm uh, South African born. Um, I grew up in a small mining town. And uh, when I was very young, um, or actually at birth, um, I got stuck. Um, and so uh, I had to be resuscitated and there, there wasn't a medical facility um, or incubation at the time. And so my first years in life um, involved a lot of challenges and a lot of struggles in terms of um, seizures and difficulties. And so um, in the third grade, I couldn't read and they put me in a special school to learn a trade. And uh, I mean, it's an occupational therapist, uh, Mrs. Spottiswood, a British lad, lass. And she um, worked with me and we realized that I had some visual challenges and um, I was able to uh, transition into a regular school, go to college. Um, I decided to pursue a medical career and uh, become an occupational therapist and became an OT in South Africa in 95, came to America, um, where I, uh, I worked um, initially at the Olympics, was my reason for coming in 96. And uh, I expanded um, into moving into this area. And, you know, I stayed a little bit longer and stayed a little bit longer and started my own business in 2003, doing physical and occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, I, um, I, I sort of delved into the world of pediatrics, um, started to teach and um, learn more. And my practice expanded and grew. Um, we have eight clinics. We serve almost 300 families, started a nonprofit to support the parents of those families. And uh, yeah, that's about it. That's, that's my daily life. I'm, I run a business. Um, I work with kids, um, I'd say most of the children that I serve um, and young adults that I serve are on the spectrum um, or autistic to, to, to some degree. Um, and I, uh, I am honored to be a part of the human experience. So what made you want to help those who are autistic? 
you know, the mind is an interesting and unique um, part of our, our human physiology and our human, uh, and it's really our whole body, right? And how we view the world. And um, I uh, was very blessed to um, have a compassion and understanding for some of these kids um, that really struggle with understanding their world. We have a hard time relating to that world. Um, and so uh, I, I saw a unique opportunity to um, speak into that experience. And so um, I uh, crave the connection um, and I enjoy um, I enjoy the uh, the interaction and the, um, the engagement. And, I, you know, I learn something new every single day from uh, every client and every person that I interact with. But, you know, there's a there's an authenticity that is required when you come into the presence of someone who is potentially more sensitive to their world or potentially way more uh, emotionally engaged. Therefore, they withdraw and they, it's just too much for them. Um, and so as part of my own personal journey in terms of regulating myself and learning how to manage myself, um, I, uh, I really respect and, and uh, enjoy that engagement with them and that opportunity to speak into them. So, yeah, that's how I got into autism. Now, do you know anyone who is on the spectrum yourself? Do you think you do you think yourself are you are on the spectrum? Well, you know, yeah, the spectrum is is really you know is a group of behaviors that are you know are unique, and and, I, and so, am I unique? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do I have a sensory nervous system, or do I have a nervous system that is under responsive in certain ways? Absolutely. I don't know when I'm hungry. Um, I have an intense amount of um, energy. Um, and so for some of uh, my clients and some of the connections that we have, matching someone's intensity is not a problem for me. Um, in fact, those are easy clients for me because I already manage my own intensity. Mm. Um, I'm very sensitive to touch, um, but I'm very and I'm very visual. Um, I could play a computer game for 10 days in a row and not necessarily know that I need to go to the bathroom. Um, I have 2,000 Pokemon cards here. I love Legos. I have, uh, there's my Millennium Falcon. And, uh, you know, I, so, yeah, you could probably say I'm somewhere on a spectrum. But um, ultimately, uh, for me, um, you know, it's not about, it's not necessarily about a label. It's just about that uniqueness. And so, yeah, I know a lot of folks that, have unique characters that um, I think uh, give them the opportunity to speak into a world, but also require help in managing that world. And for me, whether it's managing a very intense world and that's what they can handle and that's what they can do, then, you know, as long as they have joy in their life and they can experience that to the fullest of their capacity, that's, that's all I work for. That's all I want. That's all I want for me. Right. That's all I can ask for. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, good um, question. Yeah. Um, what is the process when you deal with someone who's on the spectrum? Mm. Well, you know, there, there are three realms that I look at in terms of connecting and in terms of 
um, building a relationship that supports um, that self-advocacy, that self, uh, that um, that capacity to manage things, right? That resilience that we all hope for. Like I have days where my resilience is really low, and I have days where resilience is a little bit better, right? And so um, I start off with understanding and trying to understand uh, their perspective of how they experience their world Um, from a sensory perspective, which is one of the bubbles, from an emotional perspective, another one of the bubbles, and then from an intellectual cognitive. And so look at those different levels. I try to connect with them at their place, their capacity, their intensity, um, and um, develop trust. And if I can develop trust, um, then we have a bi-directional relationship that can support um, building resilience and trust in others or in a sensation or in the clothes you wear or the sounds you hear um, and be able to affect your world in a positive way that um, gives you that sense of that, um, that inner sense of well-being, that inner sense of knowing that we all strive for that i think individuals uh, on the spectrum you know um, kids who and, and, and adults for that matter who um are neurodiverse struggle with um because the world is an intense place and people don't always understand them and it's hard to relate um so yeah it's it's, it's a challenge but certainly an honor to well, at least certainly a uh, an opportunity for growth for all of us so yeah good question too what is your process when you help those with sense with sensory issues like <clears throat> issues of light touch sound even taste right, right. texture right. how do you deal with that because they all kind of blend into each other and i know a lot of people have issues right in fact, I think that that one of one of one of the the contributing reasons why life is potentially challenging and the world is challenging for uh, folks on the spectrum um, and individuals, humans in that regard, is is managing and um, reliably interacting with all of these sensations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and how they work together. Um, I I tend to. Um, lean towards or lean into this idea that it's very complex, that there's no one sensation that will rescue you or one thing that will help you. It, it's, uh, it's, um, it's finding the right pattern and the right things that regulate you, the things that help support you, the sensations that you need. Um, and so uh, I tend to look at the, the top four sensations that are in utero, that are developed while you are still an infant in the womb. And that is sound, touch, proprioception, your sense of, of how your body feels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, your vestibular sense, which is your sense of positioning of your head and how your head moves in space. And so I like to think about those four sensations and what those sensations might do to contribute to someone being able to manage another sensation or give context to another sensation. Um, For example, my wife, um, let's say I get upset with my kids, right? And I'm, I'm upset with them because, and and so I, I, I respond potentially in a way that I know that I shouldn't, right? I get mad. 
And so I'm washing the dishes and I'm in my head, you know, and I'm mad. Let's say you're, you know, a kid and you're at school or an adult, you know, um, at work and you're just in your head, right? And you're upset. My wife could tell me a thousand times, Dylan, let it go. They're fine. You're okay. But I don't hear her. In fact, I don't really trust her until she takes her hand, puts it on my hand and touches me and says, Dylan, let it go. The touch sensation for me helps me connect. It's something that I can feel with auditory sense. I don't respond really well to, right? Because I'm very visual. Mm-hmm. So it's not that she that I don't trust her, is that the sensation doesn't help me shift my mind. My mind is stuck. And so touch is a way for me to shift my mind. A sticky note or a visual stimulus might be a way that I can shift my mind. Like if she tells me, Dylan, don't forget your lunch. Don't forget your lunch. Don't forget your lunch. Every single day, what do I do? Forget your lunch. Every day. Every day. Every day I forget my lunch because my mind has left the building. Mm. Right? I'm not present there. Sometimes the kid's on the playground, but they go into the classroom. Where is their mind? On the playground or on the swing. Or on the sensation or the thing that they're stuck on, right? Or the the oral Mm -hmm. sense. But if she puts a sticky note with a smiley face on the door, my visual system can interrupt my thought and I can go back and get my lunch every single day. So I have ways sensory-wise that support my capacity to process my world and organize it. And so I use sensation in that way. So the question is, how do I use sensation first? how to regulate you and help you calm down and manage other sensations, but also how to have context. And, and in terms of that respond in a way that's not necessarily appropriate, but in a way that helps me be successful by connecting, by managing that person. And so you have a lot of kids that perceive anger because they visually seeing someone's face, but they're not hearing, Hey buddy, I'm being sarcastic. They don't. Right. And so to give them some other sensations and context and understanding, that's how I use sensation. That is how I use the sensory system. Um, and we, you know, we use activities and, and, and um, play and uh, the interest of the individual, mm-hmm. the person, the child, the human, uh, the neuro, um, you know, the neurodiverse. Um, we use that interest to drive that practice so that their sensory systems start to help each other out automatically. Mm. Because we all, we all want to be able to manage our world like we drive a car, right? On, mm-hmm. on autopilot. Because if, you're, if, you're, if all your energy is going into managing your world, then you don't have the energy to connect. You don't have the energy to process things complex-wise. You hyper-focus. You know, and so, uh, you know, it gives you the opportunity to, um, I think, um, have meaningful, engaged employment and contribution. All right. Now, how would you help someone like me who's got spatial issues? Like I a lot of times I don't know if I'm standing too close to somebody. Right. 
And that's how I wound up losing a volunteer position is the volunteers kept reporting. I'm standing too close and they never told me face to face and they go over my head. And then how do you deal with those who have issues of filtering? Right. So two different things. And and I totally get that. So uh, I have spatial boundaries too. And I have to tell people, you, you have to remind me that I'm in your space. Because um, I don't feel that space until I touch someone because I'm sensitive to touch. But, um, you know, spatial awareness starts with your awareness of your own body in space and your vestibular system is really important for that. How your head moves in space, how you swing, how you how you how you orientate yourself to sound, to light. Your vestibular system is really, really, really important in terms of that. And there's some really good research that's new about the vestibular system and um, agency, how you affect the world and how you position in the world. And there's some really interesting, like in certain ways, if they could stimulate your vestibular system, Mm -hmm. it emulates an out-of-body experience, like you've left your body, which is interesting. Mm. Uh, I just heard a talk. Um, I, I subscribe to the star model of, of processing information and, and, and just, you know, sensory integration and that kind of thing and floor time. And, but there's this unique and interesting way how our sensory systems give us that perspective and how you can uh, do activities and engage in um, uh, a stimulation of that sensation that helps support that boundary so that you can learn, like driving a car, that where you are in space and how close you are to someone and what that looks like. Uh, another part of that is sometimes hyperfocus, right? So if your system is in tuned to really focus on one thing. So if I'm, if I'm watching TV and someone comes to sit next down next to me, and my wife starts to talk to me. If I'm really into that program mm-hmm. or I'm really in it, she doesn't exist. <laughs> like, I don't know that she's <laughs> even in the room, right? She has to turn it off or she has to like get in my space or interrupt my visual system so that she can have a conversation with me. And so in the same right, if I'm really hyper-focused on one thing, and that is my nature to protect myself from the world because otherwise it's too much, then I'm not going to be aware of of other people around me. And so the idea is to try and understand what some of the mechanisms are in terms of what that boundaries look like and to practice that and to become aware of that. And, and sometimes you just need a sticky note, you know, mm-hmm. there might be someone next to you look, <laughs> and I've learned to do that because I, I may some, I may not actually see someone or be aware that they're there. Um, but I have to remind myself to check. Just like I look in the rearview mirror sometimes to make sure that some guy's not flying down the road. I just I just have to do that because they may or may not. Okay. Um, discrimination, you're saying filtering. So, mm-hmm. so filtering um, is part of um, a, a learned experience. So we, we inherently learn how to block out uh, background noise and focus on our mother's voice as our first filtration. It's part of the middle ear muscles capacity. And if you've ever heard of polyvagal theory, which is the theory of how you perceive threat in your environment, um, 
Dr. Porges talks about the middle ear muscles contracting to attenuate to sound. And so you learn how to block out other noises to focus on your mother's voice. Um, and so filtration is one of the capacities that we learn um, in development as we start to get exposed to our world to identify what is important and what uh, of those sensations we need to um, use by sound or by touch or whatever it means. And it's, it, it's, it's experiential. So what I find with most people who have difficulty with filtering information is that they haven't had the experiential capacity to do that. Either they've been too hyper-focused or they were afraid or they had a lot of ear infections or they have this uh, the autistic tendency to have a more hyper-connected brain where they're just taking in all this information. Well, if you have a hyper-connected brain and you're taking all this information in, then your filtration capacity has to be way up here, right? Mm -hmm. Which might be like a 16-year-old need like capacity like you need maturity and your brain needs to develop and you need these experiences you need years of experience to be able to manage that intensity of information but you're two years old so you don't so the world's just overwhelming so you withdraw or you learn to hyper focus and and i think in most cases most of the kids that i have don't have an issue with people that i work with right they don't they don't have an issue uh, and they disregard, they actually have a hyper-connected regard. It's too much. And all their mechanisms, all their behaviors, and all their things that they do is language to say, I need help to filter all of this, or I need awareness in this, or I need to know that this is coming. Um, there's a significant amount of fear that comes with knowing you should know something, but not knowing what it is. Like, like when you're sitting in the car, right? And you, you're like in a parking spot and the car next to you moves, but you feel like you're moving, but you're not. You have a cold sweat. all the time. Right. You're like, oh my gosh. Right. You know, you, you literally think you're going to die. So what does it feel like for a five-year-old who feels like they're going to die all day long? So the word becomes an intense place where you have ways that you have just have to manage it. And so uh, it is, it is, and you know, it is important, I think, to be a behavioral detective, mm -hmm. to really ask good questions. You know, when I have a great day, then I call it therapy or just, you know, engagement. If I have a bad day, I call it assessment. Like, what, we, what did we learn? How do we, how do we take this and understand what does that look like? And a bad day just means that I potentially didn't have the capacity or they didn't on that day. And, you know, um, so I think there's some unique connection components to that, but filtering is really, really, really important so that you can respond appropriately. And so you can have filtering of sound, of touch, of movement, but they're experience-based and you can only really experience and learn that and something you love, which is why I have a lot of Pokemon cards and I have a lot of Legos <laughs> and I have a lot of things that involve what I love because I try, if I try to teach you how to filter information with something you don't love or you're not fully engaged in and you're not experiencing that flow of that, that interaction, your brain's not going to change. You're just adapting. Yeah. yeah that's, that's it almost feels like whenever, when I went for my master's, some of the classes 
were interesting and then some of them just were just so hard my mind couldn't focus because i lost interest right i couldn't do it right and it's just like everything the teacher said just sounded like from a charlie brown cartoon right you just feel like you're lumbering through it right right just like like that yeah and it got to the point where i was already three quarters into the class and it's like and i'm thinking should i drop out of this class and kick a class i have more interest in but then again i already will be too late to enter into the new class so i had a lumber for this class right right so you just you know you do the best you can with what you got yeah right how do you deal with kids by teaching them about the gray area between that there is that middle area and there's not just right and wrong right so what is right and wrong right i i don't know what is right and wrong but i do know that that you're right that um right and wrong comes from how i can perceive how my actions influence you because the first start of right or wrong is if i do something that potentially has a negative effect on you i take your candy i don't I scream a little loud that makes your ears hurt. I bump into you and you fall over, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I think in, in terms of right and wrong or in terms of trying to shift, uh, first you have to do it in context of relationship and trust. Um, and you work on that awareness, like that awareness first of self, like you have to be aware of what you, of your action. Like if I know that I'm not, if I don't know that I'm jumping, then how do I know that jumping is affecting you negatively because it makes you dizzy? I don't. If I don't know that I am being super loud and I'm, and I'm just maybe squealing out of happiness even, right? Mm-hmm. But that hurts your ears. But if I don't know that I'm squealing because I'm just in that moment and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm immersed, but I'm not aware. Right. Um, we I, I tend to want to shift there. So it starts with being regulated. So I, 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 I use the floor time or the DIR approach in this regard. So I look for being regulated, being able to share some of that attention, being able to incorporate someone else into my world and knowing that they are coming. I think pointing is a really big thing in this for young kids, like the capacity to point, because if I'm pointing, then Mm -hmm. I am showing you something that I notice. And there's something uniquely human about that. We're the only creatures on the planet that point. So if you think about it, if we, if we point, that's language. Language then starts to build how I influence you and how I influence you then teaches me a little bit about what might be right and what might be wrong. What might affect people negatively and what might not, right? Because ultimately society and different cultures, and there's a cultural context between right or wrong, whether it's sit at the table or not, or eat with your fingers or not, or whatever it might be, right? There's cultural context. Mm -hmm. But if you're immersed in something you love and you are uh, incorporating that person into your world, then you're more likely through progression to understand how your behaviors influence them. 
and then you can learn right from wrong. All right. Maybe. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm I'm 48 years old. I'm sort of trying to figure out what right or wrong is for me, you know? Um, Select journey. The big question is a lot of those of us who are on the spectrum have Mm. that one issue where what comes to mind, we just say. Right. How do you tell your kids, listen, you can't always say what's on your mind because it's inappropriate. It could be inappropriate. Right. Right. I've encountered that a lot, even as an adult. Right. And like what I tell a lot of people is I'm constantly monitoring my thoughts. Right. To the point where it gets tiring and then I slip. It's exhausting, dude. Yes. Right. Right. I'm, I'm with you 100% read. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in self-management. You can see, I tend to speak way too fast. I, I, you know, I have a flight of ideas. Um, but yeah, you know, it comes down to how, once again, how you influence someone else as a baseline, right. As a starting point, mm-hmm. um, being aware of, of the others. Um, but self-monitoring and self-management is, is a skill. And like you said, it's a frontal lobe skill. Now, um, I think there are two capacities here. One is, is, is the capacity to manage. And the one is the impulse, like what, like the, the actual, the actual impulse. So I think you have to, you have to have a two pronged approach. So you can meet in the middle because you're right. If you're only managing, you're going to get tired and then you're going to slip up. Right. Which is okay because you're tired, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you need more sleep so that you can not slip up as much, or maybe you, you monitor how long you're engaged with people so that you don't get to that threshold. But if you think about ideas and thoughts, right? How, how can I manage my ideas and thoughts? And I think it comes down to timing. It comes down to what your speed is and what your arousal is, right? Like, how do I slow down my actual thoughts? To slow down my actual thoughts, I need to slow down my actual biorhythm, my actual, my, like my timing. And so I use a tool called interactive metronome. Um, but I think you could use any metronome type activity and teach your body and teach your mind to slow down. I think meditation and self, self, um, self-awareness and some of that self-exploration of your mind helps you, helps you learn how to, how to slow down your mind and stop your mind. Funny story. My wife, um, uh, took me for my 40th birthday to St. Thomas surprise visit. And so she knows me. So she knows I like to do things and I don't sit still very long. In fact, very little at all. Right. My mind's, my mind's always going. And so she made me promise that we would lay down on a float for, for, for an afternoon. And so I had my drink ready. <laughs> I was laying down mm-hmm. on the float in the, in the ocean and I mean, three hours later, I'm like, please, can I go do something? I'm dying here. And she's like, yes, go have some fun. And I, you know, I want to go paddleboard. I want to go do something. I needed to build a sandcastle and I, I need something. She's like, 
just so by the way, how long do you think it's been? Like, it's been three hours. I've been here all afternoon. She's like, dude, it's been five minutes. <laughs> so, so for me, at the wrong speed or not doing something, five minutes feels like three hours in my mind. So I've had to learn how to slow down my speed, slow down my speech. And I use interactive metronome. I did that um, probably 10 years ago. I taught classes on it. Um, but it, it was a, a good way for me to learn how to manage my impulse control of my mind and slow down my mind and learn to pause. It was not a capacity I had before, no doubt. Musical instruments are a great way to do that as well, Reed. Um, specifically, like if you got younger kids, like blow instruments because of the breathing part of that. You can only play the instrument as fast as you can breathe. Um, like, you know, you could play piano really fast or guitar really fast. Drums, you can get a nice cool rhythm. So I think musicality and using rhythmicity is a way to meet, meet in the middle. So you bring yourself so you can just go a little slower and you met, you manage your capacity a little bit and you just, and then the feedback and relationship and all that stuff. But we practice that all day. Um, how to just manage your thoughts. What do you find the most challenging? Rest. Um, rest. Cause you know, it's a hurried world man. we're all rushing around. We're all, we don't have time. I've got a business, you know, i um, got a lot of cancellations because of COVID. Um, you know, uh, I, I would say rest, um, rest for me, mm -hmm. rest for my clients because mm -hmm. they have to manage school. They got to manage mm -hmm. people. They got to manage the world. They're exhausted. They got to manage their own thoughts. Then they got to manage me. <laughs> then they got to come and have a good time. And then they got to manage leaving. Right. They're exhausted. They're cooked. They're fried. Right. I get a kid at five o'clock. Do you think they've got any capacity for me to give them a whole bunch of demands and expectations? No. Zilch. Not I can tell you my own experience is by six o'clock. My mind's gone. Right. When I was in college, it would be like I about six, six thirty, my mind would shut off. And it's like right. all I want is something to do to relax. Right. Either listen to TV, play on my computer, or hang with my friends. Right. Or no demand. down and just veg. So when do kids really struggle the most? Five to six, seven o'clock, the witching hour. Dad comes home. Mom's cooking a whole bunch of stuff or vice versa, you know, rolls, whatever that looks like. But that's also when you got to finish your homework. Now, mm -hmm. let's say you did soccer and you did therapy. Now you got speech therapy and then you got two hours of homework and it's six o'clock and your brain's gone. Yeah. Right. And you just melt down. You got nothing left. Right. So I think one of our greatest challenges is rest and then rest for our parents. They're exhausted. Yeah. They are trying to do the right thing. They're having to do three jobs so that they can afford the therapies. They are <laughs> they're doing all these things. They're exhausted because um, they have all these kids and things that they need to manage. And they're driving kids around to different things. And so, uh, you know, respite care, 
Um, rest is why I started the nonprofit to be able to provide some of that help for parents, uh, financial as well as, um, you know, rest. Um, you know, I think that's our greatest challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the world especially, is only getting busier, you know, well, it's especially with those of us who like you and me and a lot out there who have ADHD along with ASD, your mind is constantly going, you right. have racing thoughts and it's about slowing that mind down to letting the thoughts go because you just tend to focus on every little thing that comes through your head. Yeah. And it owns your soul. Right. And then you, like you said, you're in perpetual fatigue. Yeah. Right. And then you miss out on the things potentially that um, would really feed your capacities because you're tired and because your resources are low. So, yeah, absolutely. 100% I mean, important with that. To give you an example, I mean, what happened with me in school was I, I never studied for an exam because my bachelor's degree was done online. And the way they did things was more of a point-based system, depending on your work, your work. So we had no exams. Go to my master's. I never knew how to study. First time around, I just tried to cram it all in. Figured I can do it. No, I failed. They said, okay, you can do a reset. So I go to my disability advisor. I'm like, help me. He sets me up with a well-being advisor. She sits me down with a work schedule. I took that work schedule to literally to the point where it was nothing but wake up, eat, study, eat, study, sleep, repeat. Uh To the point to where one day a friend of mine tells me I'm standing outside. He's like, you look like crap. I'm like, all I've been doing is eating, studying, and sleeping. And I he's like, well, you need to, you need to take time to relax and slow down because you need, and then that's when I turn to my friends online and go, guys, give me help learning how to study better. And they all told me you want to do 10 minutes on five minutes off. Yeah. And that worked. Right. 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 So a lot of times we take things too literally. Right. Unless we're explained told, and told that you need to put in this, this, and this, and not just follow things to the letter. Right. Well, and following things to the letter creates security, right? It's like mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen. It's predictability. It's it's a good, you know, it has a purpose. Like I need to know where my spices are. I need to know what's <laughs> happening. I need to, right? You know, there are things that I just need to know, Right. Um, I run a business. There are things I need to um, feel confident. Otherwise, like if I have things that are not on a list, then I'm thinking about those things and I'm worrying about forgetting about those things. And then I don't sleep. As long as my things are on a list and I know that I won't forget it, I sleep like a baby. So you're right. I think, I think there is a lot of context to, um, you know, trying to find that rest and you don't really find it unless you experience it. Like you said, yeah. they could have told you a thousand times, hey, do this. But until you do it and you realize, oh, that really helped. Um, I think that's really, really important. And I think I think that's part of some of that hypervigilance that I think parents contribute a little bit to some of the challenge is they're so keen on fixing kids and doing so much to help them. They don't rest. They don't sit down and play. They don't 
they're just so I had a, a parent. Um, there's a, a, a group that I work with that does something called PCIT, which is parent centered intervention for, ther- for therapy. It's a counseling um, psychology based support for for parenting. Um, and one of my parents was participating in PCIT and they came to me and said, you know, um, we did our first initial assessment and um, they gave us some feedback. And it turns out that in the five minutes that we played with our son, we asked him 79 questions <laughs> <laughs> because they they just they were so needing to get things going. You just don't realize, like you said, you're in this routine, the routine you think is going to help you. You just you don't realize that you're just done and you then also don't realize how that might affect other people who have to cook for you or have to manage things because you're just only eating and sitting and, and the other things that get missed. Right. So, yeah, I think um, context and experience. And I think really, like you said, read, I mean, a friend told you, so, you know, having individuals that can speak into you and reach you and Mm -hmm. that you can accept what they're saying and say, you know what, I'm going to first knee jerk and tell you you're, you're an idiot or whatever, but I'm going to think about this and, and potentially give that a try. You know, um, I have a lot of kids who initially are resistant to mind mapping. Mm. Um, and I, I had to initiate mind mapping because I cannot read and comprehend like, cause of mm. the way my processing works um, and my I visual delay. Map. Sorry. I used to mind map. Right. So I have a whole I had a whole book on it and how to literally start off with the center center cloud. Right. And right. then branch off of that. And then each branch branches off and so on right. and so forth. Right. So each thought follows each thing. Right. And what I learned in college is that I can't remember what I've read, but I know where it is on the page because I'm a gamer. I know a map. I know how to read a map. I know where things are. And so I could tell you what the crib cycle is. And I could tell you what the, the, um, the cycle for tuberculosis is. I could tell you every muscle of the body because I can remember the picture. Ooh. And so I, because my visual system is my way of processing things. So I uh, use mind maps to help um, kids see how their behaviors are influencing others. Because if you see that this does this, that does this, oh my gosh, that does this, and I get this. But if you can see it, then you get the big picture, and it's not, mm-hmm. it's not the the, it's not like the thing that messes you up. It's like it's like the book um, Will with the, Will Smith wrote, mm-hmm. uh, where he talks about the wall. And how his dad got him and his brother to build this wall that took a year. And they were so frustrated. And their dad comes and says, look, just focus on this one brick, the brick right in front of you. And this brick, just do this brick right. And then it will do this brick right. And then we'll do this brick right. But you see, you don't see the big picture and you don't see how you influence things unless you see it with your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so I teach a lot of kids mind mapping. In fact, I have mind maps here. Um, I don't do a single presentation without a mind map so that I can organize my thoughts. And so I can lead someone from one thought to the next thought to the next thought. And and it, I think it's a powerful tool for individuals who are very visual. What kind of outcome have you had with your students? Mm, I don't know. Um, I think 
I, I think if you if you look at um, did I have an impact? I would say, do I have an impact? I would say, undoubtedly. Um, do I? You know, if you want to measure impact by function or what an insurance company might say, I would say um, we're very, very, very effective um, in terms of potentially helping someone not hurt themselves or Mm -hmm. uh, be able to transition from one space to another. Um, Every brain is capable of changing. It's around time. I think my impact is directly proportional to the engagement and buying from parents. So my outcomes are parents dependent. A little bit of therapy here or there, it's not gonna save a single person. It does make a small gap to create a little bit of space to help a parent do more and a teacher more. It's it's you know, it's about how everybody in the village comes around an individual and how you how how I can potentially inspire that village, train that village, be ready for that village, but everybody has their own junk. Everybody has their own things. Parents are potentially ready or not. Um, so I would say outcome-wise, um, I would say that we're very successful in connecting with kids and giving and them the best possible experience. For some kids, honestly, Reed, mm-hmm. I don't know whether we will achieve all their goals, mm-hmm. all the goals that their parents have because they have really challenging lives their parents are in a divorce. So how do, how do I, how do mm-hmm. I help them feel safe? Right. Yeah. Um, but, but I do give them an opportunity to be themselves, be present, experience joy, connect with someone and build some capacities while they're here. That's all that. I mean, if I could achieve just that, I'm, I'm good. Solid. Do you have any success stories you could share? Oh, yeah. So for uh, kids on the spectrum, I would say, um, yeah, I do. I do. You know, I've been I've been in I've been in therapy 23 years. So I have kids that I saw where um, they had no words, um, no way of communicating um, aggression um, at a two to three year old level who are now in college and have jobs. Um, I saw one of my, one of my kids who I thought really was going to have a really tough time. And he is a, an incredibly unique kid um, who, you know, now is decided he's not going to take any of these hardcore medications that they want him. He's managing his world really well. His mom's supporting him. Um, he managed a, a divorce from his parents like, you know, as best you can. And uh, he's a Dungeons & Dragons uh, D&D master. And he's teaching other kids how to play. And wow. he's in college. And he's trying to figure out, you know, um, become, becoming a lab tech. Um, uh, I have, you know, I think that there are some, there are some brains, there's some individuals that I think um, they're, they're going to need help for most of their life. Um but their capacity to engage with joy meets those needs, have a support system that helps them. I, I, you know, I would say I have many success stories like that. Um, 
that wrap around those individuals. Um, I have a young boy. I have two clients. Um, one success story. I had a boy came to me at the age of 16. Um, he was diagnosed with mental retardation, which I don't like. I don't know what that is, but MR. Um, while seeing me at 16, he was nonverbal or verbal, but what he would say is the last word I said. So just to connect, had a really strong desire to connect. Um, athletic young man, very supportive parents. Um, and uh, he was really into running. And we uh, we worked with him and he, he got the autism diagnosis. He got an autistic diagnosis and he... he um, he somewhat embraced that and we, we, we started to work with him and he did really well. He came to me for three times a week, um, at 16, 17, uh, diagnosed of autism. Um, we were able to identify that, in fact, he had a deletion of his first chromosome, which affected his short-term memory. Wow. We were able to then really hit on short-term memory and his capacities and his engagement. And he went to the Olympics as a runner. He en enrolled in the Clemson Life Program. Um, he was on the sideline of the football uh, field when Clemson won the national championship. Um, he um, has a job at a hotel um, and is an amazing he, – he loves to take pictures of his food. So I get, <laughs> I get pictures of food. At least twice a day. Um, and I've not seen him as a client in years, um, probably five years now that I've not seen him. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I would say, yeah, we have some great success stories. What do you find the most rewarding? Having conversations like this, you know, reflecting. Um Um, I would say um, seeing a parent rest or connect with their kid. You know, my dad didn't understand my challenges and I had a really traumatic, rough childhood. And so seeing that connection, seeing that, that tie in for me is, you know, that's really rewarding seeing seeing someone who who potentially you know just being present right i don't need mm -hmm. to be the recipient of it you know in fact that's actually stealing mm. right i you know I, my i'm a facilitator i should be right um so yeah uh, seeing a, a parent giggle because they are in a moment with their kid and I call it, we call them um, magic moment. That's mm -hmm. my, that's my jam. I mean, that will keep me going for a while. Magic moments. Now, how do you help your clients like who have like very high sensory issues, right? Such as light and touch. I mean, that is difficult because I've known a lot of people, they wear glasses, they right, wear headphones. Right, right. How do you help them get over that? Or can you even? I think you can. Um, once again, I think it's experiential and everybody's nervous system is different. I think your starting point is always um, with those four different sensations that create safety. You have to feel safe. 
Um, and so we modify environment um, in my clinics or in their home, or we have an outdoor program where we go, uh, we see kids out in national park. Like we, we take over the national park and on a Tuesday, we got all these kids out and because they do better outside than in four walls with, you know, fluorescent lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, we do equine assisted therapy where they get to engage with animals because animals are potentially more reliable than people mm-hmm. uh, and they connect more with them. Right. So mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it looks like where they can feel the safest by modifying the light, the space, I have two 10,000 square foot buildings here and we have different rooms that have different ambient, uh, ambient capacities um, so that we can find the just right space. So and then you, you have, have to find the just right person. So you have a sensory inclusive room. Yeah. Um, I would say we have several different kinds, like um, different colors, different um, sounds, um, different uh, opportunities for movement. Um, and invariably, you or me or anybody else picks the room where we feel safest. We do. Mm-hmm. Um, or potentially the room that matches our intensity, um, mm-hmm. right? So maybe maybe swinging for 30 minutes is what you need. And that's where we start. If maybe um, I got a young boy that comes in and I pull him around on a scooter board and I run, run for an hour. <laughs> because that's 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 his happy place. That's his, um, that's where he can manage the world. And we start there and we started bringing the other stuff and we started bringing the sounds and we started bringing the light and we start to, um, teach how to filter and we start to manage that. But you don't, you don't learn how to filter if you don't feel safe because then you're just shutting down. So you have to start with safety and whatever that looks like. Um, I use a lot of touch, um, you know, touch sensations. Um, sound is a big part. So if they wear headphones, then I use um, a music-based uh, therapeutic tool to support that, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the safe and sound protocol with Dr. Porges to create that sense of safety and engagement to support that um, with the parent or me. Um, uh, I have a young boy that the first thing he walks in the door, he has popcorn <laughs> because that crunchiness and that, that engagement, that part starts him off and he has to chill from his day and all the things he had to do and the crying siblings in the car. So finding that safe place for him and then teaching him from that point, how to manage the other sensations, what they are, how they come um, and building up some resilience is that's the game. Now looking at your side, I see you deal with those who have self-esteem issues. I have a friend who kind of has self-esteem issues where he has to, he's younger than me, but he literally has to get like, I guess you could call it almost visual self-esteem gratification where he'll throw photos of himself just to have people compliment him. He lives off of that. How do you deal with people who have low self-esteem? Well, Self-agency and, and how you feel about yourself is how you can how you affect others or affect your world and how you can measure that. So, you know, um, I think it starts with um, confidence. 
right? And then you ask yourself, well, how do you build confidence? And that starts with self-agency and um, that inner sense of knowing that you are okay. Once again, if you experience the world like the car moving and you get in a fight or flight response continuously and you can have all the resilience in the world, but the world is still a really scary place. And at the same time, you're not confident that you can affect it. You're not confident that you could change it. And so if you can build, I can change the world. I can change or influence this person. I can have the confidence to try something and potentially fail, right? Then uh, potentially you can, you can work on your esteem. Uh, another part of esteem is once again, that connection with your body and where your body is in space. Um, I think individuals who really, really struggle with self-esteem and that sense of being okay are folks who have gastrointestinal challenges or you know have gut issues who don't feel good on the inside. They, they hurt, right? They eat and they hurt. They, they don't feel okay inside. And so there's nothing in the world that convince you that you're okay if internally, you don't feel okay. You don't feel okay in your own skin. You don't trust that your body is not going to fall over if someone pushes you, right? So I think um, that resilience starts with postural control, with feeling like you had to manage your body in space, knowing where space is, experiencing that in a way that you, like for your friend, he needs to find something he loves to do that engages his body through movement and, and relationship. Um, I had a, a kid that came to me after, um, not on the spectrum, but had, she was, she was 12 years old and she had a, um, a bacterial, she had an infection that, uh, that killed all the nerves in her hand. Mm. So she couldn't move her hand. She couldn't feel her hand, but it was slowly recovering, but she refused to use it, refused to use it. And, um, we we got her going and I got her I got her using her hand, but she could not get full function. But we realized that she loves horses. Loves, loves horses. And so we got her with a horse, brushing a horse, then riding a horse, and she gained full function of her hand because she was doing something she loved, using her hand and and, and her body in space. And so it wasn't the the therapy got her halfway there, but the function and the joy and the activity that she really was able to do repetitively enough got her hand to go. I had a young boy had a stroke in utero, right? Mm. Uh, he came to me, couldn't use his right hand. He had lots of therapy. He was five years old and refusing to use his hand. Refused. Would not, could not, and would not use his hand at all. And he, um, he wouldn't talk to me for like four or five sessions, like four weeks. I'm just sitting there looking at him, smiling. But in talking with mom, I realized and we realized that he had an exceptional love for Spider-Man. And so one day he showed up at the clinic and I was in a full neoprene Spider-Man suit. <laughs> full neoprene adult Spider-Man suit. And we were, we were able to, as Spider-Man team, and he put in on his suits, right? With the suit on, Spider-Man could use the hand. Hmm. Not trip. Spider-Man. And so I used this idea of not being present or this, this play or this imagery. Like for your friend, 
could you could he imagine being someone else that does have confidence and then practice that just as part of a play as part of a social social experiment and then that translates to actually feel like i could be confident because of that experience right and and i think that's where play is so powerful because in play even in play of your mind you have the opportunity to practice something that you that has less risk but that you can test the boundaries of your capacities like go to the very edge of that you know it's that whole sense of that neurobiology of of play and of where where he could potentially envision himself engaging with someone appropriately and 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 have that role play and be able to feel that confidence build it self esteem is a big one it is a very big one if if you don't feel comfortable in yourself you're not going to feel comfortable and you're not going to have the confidence in yourself to face the world right 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 what is your success rate uh, once again, I think in terms of connecting with folks, maybe, I don't know, 80, 90%. And lastly, how can people find out more about you and your services? Uh, just Google my name, I guess, Dylan, D-I-L-L-E-N, hardly. Um, Advanced Therapy Solutions. I think uh, people find me um, around, you know, find my team. Um, I spend a lot of time um, mentoring and supporting, uh, you know, groups because I'm, you know, you don't, you don't um, help people and there are kids that, that I'm not the right fit for, right? There are people I'm not the right fit for, but I have mm-hmm. team members that are. It's, it's about finding the right person that, that someone can connect with, the right space. So, you know, um, I think it's uh, intentional, but I think most people who are looking find me. Um, but uh, yeah, my website, we're actually launching a new website that I think is going to be a little bit more parent uh, directed and interactive, more pediatric based, a little bit more supports in them. Um, but yeah, you can just Google my name. All right. And that's it, everyone. Dylan Hartley of Advanced uh, Therapy Solutions. Thank you so much, Dylan, for coming on the show. Miles, thank you so much. And I really love to connect with you more. Um, I'm not coming to Chicago in the winter. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's too cold for me. It's not going to happen, but we'll make a plan. I'd love to connect with you again. All right.